Welcome back to The Coaching Bubble, where we explore all things coaching. I'm your host, Stephen Bean, and this show is for everyone, all coaches, all sports, from novice to elite, and we hope to leave you with some tips and advice from some of the most interesting people in the field. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. David Passmore. David lectures in coaching science in DCU and also on the master's coaching course in UCD. A coach educator of European and world hockey, a former high performance director of Irish hockey, David's primary area of research is now in elite coach development. On the show today, we talk about David's coaching journey and how he got to where he is today, how his coaching philosophy has evolved over the years and why he tries to get his students to think about their own values when coaching. And we talk about the story of Irish hockey in the time before World Cup finals. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Dave, thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. So you lecture in coaching and various other areas in both DCU and UCD, and we'll come back to that. But I'd first like to start with a bit of background with yourself, if you don't mind. For those who don't know you, can you maybe give us a little bit of background of your own sort of coaching journey and how you ended up here? Yeah, um, it's been a quite a long journey. It started a lot earlier than I thought it had. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a recent discussion with one of my old teachers. But my first introduction to coaching really was like many people, it was unexpected. Um, I was a mad sport, uh, mad into sport when I was younger. Um, and you know, disappointing for me, picked up quite a serious back injury when I was in my first year at college. So what did I do? I wanted to invest my time back into sport and the sport I loved into hockey. So I started coaching a university team, the ladies team at, at 19, uh, without any expertise or idea of really what coaching was. And until that time, I probably didn't even have an experience of good coaching. Um, we played a lot of sport at school, um, but the sport I played most, uh, hockey, was run by teachers. The, the guy we fell into was not even a hockey coach. He knew nothing about the sport. So I ended up, without even realising it, coaching that team. And we were really successful as a, a sort of mixed co-ed school, state school in, in South London that wouldn't be a traditional hockey school. We went on to, to, to win a lot of county uh, regional and national titles um, and just speaking back with him he said well you ran that team not me and you naturally fell into that role of, of coaching whereas I'd never thought of it like that I'd never seen as it like that um, so maybe when I started coaching it, it wasn't my first experience but I, I wouldn't have known anything about it and I never had a great ambition to move forward it was just something that I really enjoyed and it kept me involved in a sport that I loved what I, what I did know was that I really loved developing people and I, that, that would be the biggest thing. I, I don't see myself as a teacher or as a coach or as a mentor, even though I fulfilled a lot of those roles. I think what I am is a developer of people and there's nothing I enjoy more of seeing people develop. Um, I got a lovely phone call yesterday from a coach I worked with for many years. I was her mentor, Sally Calls Cadden, who's just won a silver medal in the equestrian just thanking me for all my input. And almost that's more satisfying than winning the medals yourself. So anyway, I started quite young. I was very fortunate. I, I, I fell into positions where I had some very good players. Um, so I probably ambled along as a pretty poor coach and had some success and moved into representative coaching quite early. Again, was fortunate to have uh, good teams, good players. Um, and it's just about bringing the best out of those. So I probably was better at that side in terms of putting a group of people together 
rather than being a good coach in my early days and was very successful. We won three under 21 national titles without conceding a goal with the county. So that led to me getting involved at East level as it was in, in, uh, in England at that time. Won a national provincial title, as we would call it here, um, and soon suddenly found myself, uh, whilst I'd then become a teacher, I was then appointed to a national role that at that time um, without realising because of my teaching I'd become quite good at a lot of the coaching skills uh, and teaching and my teacher development was probably more important to me than any coach development I had at that time. So then I started probably to develop really at that point as a coach I was still only 27, 28 so very young to be coaching a national under 18 girls team as it was that time we won a gold medal in Europe um, I was fast-tracked there and I became a full-time coach for 14 years. So I did seven years with England and Great Britain, um, won several European medals, uh, was fortunate enough to go to as an assistant coach to the Sydney Olympics, uh, World Cups, assistant senior coach to European uh, medal-winning teams. Um, and then uh, throughout this period, I, I have a family of five children and a, and a wonderful wife, Leone, who I learned a lot from as a developer of people. So we have five amazing kids, really, um, who are all very different, even though I have two sets of identical twins. And Leone's from Ireland, and I just loved Ireland. I loved what Ireland stood for as a culture. Uh, the the importance of family within that culture, and having grown up in London. I didn't really have any association to anyone or anything and yet I came to a small parish in in, uh, in County Limerick and I actually felt part of something for the first time and then I felt part of the County Limerick thing and then I felt part of the Munster thing so I, this was a place I wanted to live and I wanted to, we wanted to bring up our kids so we moved over and I carried on working for English Hockey uh, for another year and commuted and then a job came up as the men's national coach uh, but they couldn't afford me, really, I couldn't afford to come here on the salary they were offering. So to get me into that role, they also offered me the high performance director's role. So I fell into a coaching and director's role that I really wasn't ready for, even though I had quite a lot of experience. So that was where some of my best learning took place, both learning about the culture of, in Ireland um, but at the same time I had a blank canvas in terms of what, what went on and we did a lot of good things in those days that probably laid the foundations for the success of Irish hockey now. The men's team was ranked 26th. I got them to 18th, I think. They're now ranked 10th in the world. The women then were ranked 15th. They're now ranked 7th in the world. And success in team sports at international level takes a long time. So I did a lot of work on changing the way we think about long-term athlete development, about how we assess and evaluate athletes the role of the junior coach in developing long-term, not about getting short-term results. Um, so that was a really interesting period for me in which I made a lot of mistakes and errors. Um, and because I didn't really have a good sort of formal coach education development background, during my time with Irish Hockey, I went and studied a master's in sports coaching in Loughborough, which is one of the top universities in the world for sport and uh, sports development, elite sport. And I learned a lot through that about myself and it started to get me to reflect, even though I was still coaching at the men's team at the time. Um, 
but really two jobs was too much. So I had a decision to make then, did I go carry on coaching or did I carry on being the performance director? And I felt I'd brought the men as far as I could and they needed somebody new, somebody different and probably somebody more tactically minded than I. Um, so I stepped down, took the performance director's role and then my quest for further development of my understanding of the coaching process brought me to study a doctorate. Um, so I started studying the doctorate while, still while with Irish hockey, but then I'd made a commitment openly that we would qualify a team for the Olympics in 2012. And the men missed out by nine seconds in Dublin, quite a, you know, a lot of day people remember because it was on the telly. Um, and then I, I was stood behind the goal when the goal was scored by Korea. And I knew immediately it was a goal, even though nobody saw that it was a goal because the touch was so deft by the reaction of the goalie, a former DCU student, David Hart, who's now World Goalkeeper of the Year, um, who ironically I'd coached from the age of 16 and you could tell he was always going to go a long way. But his reaction told me that it was a goal. Um, and that in itself is a story because it was only seen on footage. The umpire, the umpire didn't see was it touched. So from there, the following day, I then traveled to Belgium to watch our women's team and support them. And they got to a final to qualify for the Olympics. So within the course of six days, seven years of work as a performance director and to a lesser degree as a national coach came to fruition. And I backed a team to qualify in seven years of me taking on this role as performance director. And the women's team lost that final. Um, uh, despite the stats saying they should have won it, they lost they lost, comfortably lost. And sat on the flight on the way home, I realized that I hadn't achieved what I'd set out to do, what I'd said we could do. So I handed in my notice. So there I was, a family of five and no job from three months time. So thankfully, um, because I'd started the, the doctorate, this amazing opportunity came up at DCU and Catherine Woods, with although I hadn't finished my doctorate, she backed me as a person, I think, to get my doctorate finished and my knowledge and experience in coaching that I could start the role here at DCU, which is one I absolutely love. And it's nice because it combines a lot of coaching elements with education and they're closely interlinked. Um, okay, I have to jump in here now because you've touched on a lot of things <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Um, before I get into your this sort of the academic stuff and, and what the work you're doing in DCU and UCD and stuff like that, you said you decided on the plane on the way home that's it, I haven't achieved my goals. Was there pressure on you to hand in your notes or did you just make that decision yourself? That's it, I didn't, no, I didn't no, make my goals. No, not at all, but I think when you stand for something and you, you make brave, I mean, people laughed at me when I said that, that we'd get a team to the Olympics. And since then we've done it. And now we've got a World Cup silver medalist. Um, I didn't quite see that one coming and I worked for the team as an assistant coach for six months in the last year. And I, meant, I was mentor uh, to, to their coach and also his coach for 100 of his 152 caps. And no, there was no pressure. But in, in a high performance world, you have to behave like a high performance person. And that means you put your, your buck on the line. I had a permanent contract and I didn't want to sit there and wait for a job and then go, well, now I'm leaving because that wasn't being true to myself or to any people around me. So I made that decision, and, and that's a tough decision when you've five kids that you've no job. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, um, and, but it didn't need explaining to my wife. So when I said she was one, you know, wonderful, she just said, well, I back you to get a job, you'll find something. Um, 
so the opportunity here at DCU came up and you know I've gone back coaching and I'm probably now a better coach or yeah. more prepared coach to, so, than I've ever been I just want to go back on another thing you said you mentioned in the first uh, two or three minutes in terms of uh, when you said you started your coaching you mentioned people about 12 times about how you probably weren't that good of a coach or a trainer but you brought people together and stuff like that did you realise that you you had that ability to do that at a young age or has that sort of evolved as you've gone along or are you now in your more sort of knowledgeable state are you looking back and saying actually I was doing that all along I just didn't know what it was called I probably did in my early days but I think my, f- my, my coaching philosophy cha- changed it was kind of forced change on me the way I'd coached before I got involved in English hockey and then how I was expected to behave I lost some of my core values and my coaching philosophy at that time and I probably brought some of that to Ireland with me so maybe I didn't do that initially um, but that's a big thing I've gone back into coaching now I coach the under 21 girls here which is a role I absolutely love we got promoted there um, into the top division and this year we're, we're going to hopefully go and qualify for a World Cup for the first time but where I judge myself is yes okay it's about pulling groups of people together so you don't have to be the best coach to do that and there's loads of examples of that in, in sport where somebody's a really good man manager and understands the bigger picture and can get everybody's noses in the right direction and pointing in the same direction um, that they're going to be successful um, however I also un- understand that a role as a development coach is about developing future internationals so I'm often asked the question what's your biggest coaching success um, and really my biggest coaching success was that 10 of the girls in England and Britain that I work with, 9 of them went on to win Olympic gold medals and it, I, I didn't realise that at the time but a lot of them have come to me since wrote me letters, emails I met Alex Danson there last week you know I worked with her between the ages of sort of 18 and 22 I gave her a first cap as an England senior You mentioned there that your coaching philosophy has changed and we know that you are in uh, coach education now you're, you're, you're in DCU and UCD teaching coaching to young students so how do you teach something like a coaching philosophy or how do you teach people values and culture and stuff like that you've already mentioned but you said it's it's taken it's evolved over time so how do you teach that to, to a young student who maybe is just starting out in their career yeah i think the the big problem around values and philosophy is we look at well who are our coaching role models so who did we respect so a lot of people say alex ferguson mm-hmm. that's not me saying that well then you ask why and then there's also a load of buzzwords in education and coaching athlete centered you know athlete centric rather than being coach centered autocratic the the old ways in which we view a coach um and so when you assess your own values which formulate your philosophy a lot of people's philosophy is just aspirational it's what they'd like to be not what it really is and, and that really came out when I worked um, in the Institute of Sport on the Pursuit of Excellence program, which is a, was a fantastic program the Institute of Sport run over a number of years with coaches of very level, varying levels. So um, Billy Walsh was on the program, so did a lot of work with him, right down to Graham Shaw, the hockey coach that's just won the silver medal. When he first went into coaching as a developmental coach, he came onto the program and was really raw as a coach. He was still really a, had a player's mindset. And 
it's only when you get other people to reflect on your coaching or you truly are honest with yourself in your own self-assessment is your coaching philosophy really your philosophy and then your philosophy might change depending on the level you coach so my philosophy with kids is all about enjoyment and just playing and having fun those are the three big words play fun enjoyment build a love of the sport and appreciation of the sport um, at a higher level then it, you know it can become more athlete centric um, empowerment stuff like that games based um, and really only can you truly assess are you truly living your philosophy by by self-evaluation and what we did in the pet program was to get the coaches to evaluate themselves and what we found was it was aspirational it's what they wanted to be not what they were and through getting them to self-assess as mentors going and seeing them coach and getting them to get each other to watch themselves so here's my philosophy come and watch me coach and tell me what you see did people realize that actually they weren't what they said they were on the tin and that that taught me a lot and you know when i lecture here in dcu I try and get them to profile the, the, the young students to coach, to profile what they feel a good coach is. And then when they do a coaching session, and you've worked with me on some of those coaching sessions, they're not coaching, they're training. And they're not actually living what they think a good coach is. So that's the only way you can teach it. And it's like anything in life, we learn from our failures and from our mistakes. And actually creating those mistakes in people and getting them to reflect on it is the best way to learn. I can tell them that, but they're not going to learn. I can give them research and they don't learn. So my philosophy around the way I try to educate the players, the, the, the students here is through letting them experience and make mistakes, but then giving them the opportunity to reflect and say, well, how would I change this? Okay, so uh, let's just say there's a novice coach listening right now going, oh my God, that's fantastic, I need to do that. What would your give us an easy option to, to do some self-reflection as a coach? Yeah, I think if you write down the three or four most important things. So so reflection is normally what did I do well? What didn't I do well? You know, um, so it's about the content of the training session, of the coaching session. Um, and, and it's often the training aspects. So I might say I like to build good individual relationships. So if that's one of my philosophies, if right, that's one of the five things I write down. This is what I want to be to be a good coach. Okay, or here's my top coach I'd like to be like. Once you assess, go back to those five things you've written and go, well, where are the four examples of that in my last coaching session? And what they'll find is they don't do it. And that's brilliant if they find they don't do it because what they then have to ask themselves is, how could I have done it? And how will I do it the next time I, I coach? And we all do that still. So I say I'm, I'm athlete-centered and I'm games-approached. My way of reflecting is often through recorders. So I jump in the car and I sit on my phone and I record my reflections of that session. And I'd like to say I then listen to them before I plan the next session, but I never get time. I'll be honest with you. So what I do is I plan the session. Then when I'm driving to the session, the next session, I listen to it again and I link the two. So here's my plan. Here's my review from last time. This is what I didn't do. I didn't speak to that player around his attitude or I didn't ask enough questions I gave too much information or there was a little bit too much drill and not enough gameplay 
and then putting my markers in, well, how will I make sure that happens in this session? And that's easy to do because most people travel to a training session. So there's an easy way that I've found on ensuring that my coaching reflects my own philosophy and my values in my coaching. Do you think even the, the act of, of recording yourself though even sort of focuses in on what you did or didn't achieve in a training session? Like that even without reviewing it again, even that simple act of just recording or writing down or whatever way you do it, it do you think that's, that's half the battle to get there? It is. And if one of the things I do, and this depends on the, your team, I'll actually say to my team now, I'm going to make sure we do this and this because I'm aware I didn't do it last week. And if I don't do it, I want you to come and speak to me afterwards. So I actually can make a commitment to them in the start of the session while it's fresh in my mind. And then I know I have to live and breathe what I said I was going to do. And of course, a coaching plan is only a plan and we tend to veer off it, which good coaches will do. But that will ground me in terms of making sure that I do come back to the things that I said from my values that I will ensure in that so coaching session. You're holding yourself accountable, basically. Yeah, and, and the other thing, it's a really good thing for, particularly for kids coaches to do. If you ask the kids, what is it that they like about coaching and coming to training? Ensure that you're fulfilling their needs. Because, you know, particularly in a sort of, a recreation participation environment you know it's like if I go and coach a club 30-11 in hockey their motives for being there are totally different from a, a first 11 in the National League that are trying to qualify for Europe and I've got to respect those that enjoyment and they, they turn up to, to spend time with their mates and just sometimes giving them a three minute break in the middle of the session where they can have a chin wag and a bit of crack or have a bit of fun in a competitive environment with their friends, even in the warm-up. I do this little game with 2v1s. It's three players, and you can pick who you play your 2v1 with, and then you can suddenly change it. That creates a really good buzz and gets them taking the mickey out of one another or having a bit of fun, which automatically then has served the purpose. It's a warm-up, it's stickable, it's competitive, it has a decision-making element in it, but it actually gets them to enjoy the session and a bit of fun with their best two mates if they want to pick their two mates in the group um, to do that with. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip, to giving them a little bit of autonomy while still having it ticking other boxes that you want to achieve, I think is very, it can be very successful, particularly with kids. So you talked about when you bring new students in and when you get them to do a practical session that they end up doing a training session rather than a coaching session. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit and talk about how you can combat against that. Yeah, so, so what, I mean, uh, you know, there's many definitions of what good coaching is, but basically it's the improvement of performance. Um, obviously at a younger level, it might be just about getting them to play and, and enjoy it. But most people want to get better at what it is they do. So, but what I tend to see is the students will often come in and coach how they are coached and particularly from certain sort of team environments where they've been coached by people who may not have been educated to coach, they're coached by parents and they go into this drill mode. So coaching is drilling. Well, that's not, that's training, not coaching. And there's a place for drilling and training. I respect that. However, do they actually evaluate, are they improving at what they're doing? So are the athletes improving? and what's their role in improving them. 
And that might be just asking reflective questions, so getting the participants to reflect, did they find this easier or this easier? So it's not just about running a set of drills and moving from one to another. Coaching is about developing each individual and a group if it's in a team environment, and you have to assess against that. So we talked about reflection when you say, well, what progress did they make? As the first question when you evaluate a session with a student, they sit there thinking, oh my God, even though it was the first lecture you did, what is coaching? Coaching's about improvement. Well, how did you improve and what did you do to improve it? So for, for any coaches out there, that's what you need to integrate into your planning. It's most people when they plan, they plan the drills and the exercises or the games as I would hope it would be more, not what is it that game that they're aiming to improve because then you'll get reflection in action. So by that I mean this game isn't improving what I aim to improve, therefore I need to change the rules, the size, the number of players, whatever it might be. And if we can live with that as our reflecting during and start to think about are they all improving? Why are they improving or why not? And who, if half of them are improving and half are not, why not? And what must I do to help them improve? Is it a bit of skill? Is it a skill that they're falling down on? And maybe then go and do a bit of skill work. So pull them out of the game and go and do a bit of, you know, skill acquisition or technical work and give them some coaching points. All I tend to see, or too much of what I tend to see, no matter how I gear the lecturing process and the, the flow of the lectures is, training we go and we run a drill and I see lots of hustle brilliant great fantastic which is all relevant but what's great what's fantastic so even when we even when we say those things that's training we can flip that by saying uh, well that was a, a great decision because you did this that was even if you're praising ethic work ethic off the ball to come back and defend that's telling the player that that's what you want to see in, in that situation in a game. It's positive reinforcement. And that's what we don't do enough. We just praise or school. That's rubbish, yeah, but not the what or why, because that's where improvement takes place. Do you think a lot of people gravitate towards the training element as the drills side of it, as you say, as they're afraid of like the uncontrollables as in the stuff that they lose control yeah and that's why not enough coaches will engage in in games play because it's uncomfortable you don't know what's going to happen it's it's unstructured it's chaotic which bit do i pick out when i see 10 different things every 20 seconds that i could improve and that's where we we as coach developers don't place enough emphasis on the development of our coaches is obs observing and then providing effective feedback. Yeah, and I think we had Liam Morgan on the show uh, on our first episode, and he, I think he said something similar. I think the phrase was, out of chaos comes order. And by allowing that episode of chaos, that, that's where the most development and learning happens. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of environments, maybe not so much in the GAA, but, you know, a lot of young soccer coaches are paid to come in and coach, and therefore they feel, and I've done this research with informally with with coaches they feel if they're running small-sided games and it hasn't got a very orderly look to it people will perceive it as not coaching and there's the challenge so you've got this one obstacle is, is it really coaching 
And then number two, so drills look like coaching. And then number two, um, games, does that really, can I cope with the chaos that exists and, and it's building that confidence in the, in the coaches? And that's not easy. Obviously the summer we've just had, the, the ladies team getting to the, uh, the final was amazing and it really, the, the whole country seemed to get behind them. Could you maybe give us, fill in the gap since 2012 was it? That, uh, or since you finished up 2011? Yeah. How hockey's got to where it is now? Yeah, I think the foundations were largely built um, before that. So you don't get to that stage without a good development program. So we, you know, the, the players, when, when I first came in, we weren't gonna be able to have a significant impact on them. Um, and it, it was changing at a number of levels. And I'm not gonna say this was only my work um, although it would have had an influence. So we, we formalized the structure, but we had to create a culture of high performance. And that doesn't happen overnight. They, they had to think of themselves as, when I arrived, the men's team were like a pub team. And we had to get them to think of themselves as not as hockey players, but as 24 seven athletes. And that was the struggle. And it, the biggest struggle was because they didn't have the belief that becoming athletes was gonna pay off that they were going to be, you know, that, that, that they were going to actually, all the hard work that they put in, I'm not going to use the word sacrifice, I don't like the word sacrifice. The choices that they made to become elite athletes would pay off. And there was this, you know, it was a massive battle trying to get the athletes to believe that they could do something and, and achieve. When I said we'd be top 12 in the world in the men's when we were ranked 24th, everyone laughed at me including the brothers, sisters, parents of the players in the team. So we had to build this culture, but we also had to build this belief in them that they had the ability. And, you know, that wasn't easy. The other issue we faced at that time was we had regional leagues. So there were 24 teams playing at the highest level, and that's too many. It dilutes the quality. That's not, that's not a... It's not a criticism of coaches or, or clubs, it's a criticism of just, it, it's, a, it's a reality that if you have a small number of top teams, the quality gets better. So we had an IHL team, we, we created a national, we tried to create a national league when I was in there in 2006 and it got voted out and then it got passed and that's raised the level. What we also did was in 2011, we adopted a, what we called a cuckoo policy, which wasn't we didn't verbalize this externally, but it coincided with a number of our players leaving college, but at the time there not being very many jobs in Ireland. And the, the professionalization in Holland and Belgium, particularly of clubs where they could go and train full time, get paid, have a flat, a car, and, and train like elite athletes. But what we did is we strategically placed them. So we put David Hart into a club where there was one of the best goal scorers, the best goalkeeper coach, and one of the top drag flickers in the world. So his environment itself would help develop him. And that was also because of a lack of money. You know, we didn't have the money to do the volume and level of training that we did. So we moved, a lot of players went away, they lived the elite athlete, they brought that back to Ireland and that spread into the club. So it wasn't just about the culture we were creating, it's what you do every single day. So the level of club 
hockey went up and they came back and they wanted video analysis, they wanted feedback, they wanted online platforms where they could self-evaluate, they wanted to, to train in environments where all the other players around them train like they did over in Holland and Belgium and Spain. So that in itself had an impact. Um, so I think, but, but one of the biggest issues I had to try and conquer when I came over is I looked at all the results beforehand and, and, and Ireland had tended to do really well at the beginning of tournaments, but it's the end of the tournaments where the placings are gathered. And we tended to burn ourselves out. We threw a lot of energy into big games. You know, if we were playing the English and we would almost get a result and just lose 2-1 or 3-2, you know, that was almost like a moral victory. That wasn't good enough. We had to build through a tournament and we had to be able to recover and put in consistent performances. And I think we started to achieve that. However, we also struggled with the psychological side. And I think the biggest difference in the women's game where Graham was tremendously successful. Um, I was involved in the team and started the cultural process, but actually the psychologist Gary Longwell came in and he looked at, well, what do the girls, what kind of environment do the girls want? And they felt they played better when they were relaxed and they enjoyed what they were doing and they forgot about the consequences or the results. So there's a whole load of different factors. It's the training build-up, it's them having gone away, the women and the men now, playing in foreign leagues, it's the change of culture, how hard we train. And I think ultimately it, it got an Irish coach who understood the Irish psyche with an Irish psychologist who brought them together, um, a good tactician obviously, um, and essentially those ingredients produced that wonderful performance. And what was so nice, I was obviously out there, was seeing the girls come out of a tunnel, laughing, smiling and joking up and soaking it up rather than fearing it. That's one of the most striking things to me. I don't think I've ever seen anyone come out in like in a, in a World Cup final or an All-Ireland final and it's usually stony-faced, game face on, but the girls just looked so relaxed and happy. And, and hockey is a very different sport from, say, rugby or GA, where, where you have to be physically ready for impact and collision and hitting somebody hard and then they'll hit you. And it's such a high level of skill and decision-making, you don't make the right decisions if you're over-aroused. And that was our problem. We used to get over-aroused. And, you know, I thought I'd got that absolutely right with our under-21s two years ago, three, two years ago, we were in Valencia. And we'd, we'd, we'd used um, the video, the start of Gladiator. So the start of Gladiator, you have this Roman army, totally organized in lines, Already they all have their job, they all have their role, they're all reliant on one another and actually they're quite relaxed and then you get Gladiator comes in and he talks to his cat and they have a laugh before, even though some of them are going to die, they have a laugh and he talks about being in the moment and he, he fills the, the, the fields where he lives and he sees a little robin and then there's a dog involved and when you're over aroused you miss all those things and you know you're on a pitch in a warm-up when everybody's in the right zone because they'll hear everything and they'll be aware. Often you'll talk to players on a pitch before a big game and they're not like in that zone. So we thought we'd got the girls to realise this is a big thing. We're playing England in a European Cup first game. It's an important game if we want to make the semi-finals. And they were totally there in the warm-up. They were in the right place. And then when we reviewed the game after, we lost the game in the first eight minutes by really bad decisions and people doing things that I'd never seen them do before. 
And there were a couple of things. It was during the anthems. They all seized up. And they saw the national coach there and then they all panicked. And whilst I thought as a coach I've got them right, actually, it didn't carry on through. And what the girls did, you look at how they enjoyed the national anthem. I don't even think they were thinking about the fact they were playing in 10,000. They were in a World Cup quarterfinal, semi-final, final. They were just living in the moment. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I, and I think watching a lot of GA, I love hurling particularly, the team's totally underperformed because they get over-aroused. And it's a harder balance in those teams because they have to be physically ready for combat, but they have to be mentally in the right place to kind of make the right decisions and receive the ball and not be hard-handed when they're catching a slitter or a football. So it's not an easy thing to do, but the girls got it right. And it was a great learning point for me, reflecting on having thought I'd got my 21s in the right place. Well, I had, but then there's an eight-minute period where you've no control what they're thinking or doing. And so that's where we need to go next. So I think that's a lesson for, for all young coaches, particularly those working with the younger. Sometimes you just got to let them go out, go out and enjoy yourself. Because that's why they play sport and they'll play better if they do. And the girls proved that. And it was, you know, a testament to them. That was the culture they wanted. The, the work of the psychologist and also, you know, Graham himself was a bit like that. We had conversations when he first came into... To, about his own performances, he used to he used to throw a flisbury or get a, a hurley and a sitter out in the warm up just before we physically warmed up um, to play international matches when he was in the men's team. The psychologist that we used, a great guy, Phil Moore, who works in the Institute of Sport now. When when I was in first with the men's squad, he talked about um, you know some people need to be at work to play well. That means they need to be pumped and hyped. Other people need to be at play. They need to be in a fun, relaxed, in the moment place. And he taught our players how to flip from one to the other. So you have got the, had the guys in the Chessingham would be rah, 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 rah. And then we had half. And, th and that was quite a difficult thing to sell to a group. Well, those guys who are playing Hurley and throwing a Flusby round are doing what they need to be in the right place. And you've got to accept that. Because they, the rah, 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 the ones who've got to get are really aroused to perform well, didn't think those guys were doing what they should be doing to perform. And uh, it was interesting talking to opposition coaches that we had a coach, Gene Muller, who played against us with Canada, said it totally freaked the Canadians out, watching guys with a hurley and a slitter and, a, um, you know, throwing a frisbee round just before they do a physical warm-up or at the beginning of the physical warm-up. Um, they freaked them out <laughs> because of their ice hockey mentality. They have to be totally, you know, f f hyped. You've talked an awful lot there about uh, your own involvement in at high performance levels and, and the pursuit of excellence program and stuff like that you have a huge range of experience from meeting different coaches around the country now at this stage how would you say the health of coaching in, in Ireland is at the moment I I genuinely believe Ireland is I, 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 you know I, I, am, I consider myself Irish and I love being part of a culture which there are so many volunteers I'm, a, I'm such a massive admirer of the GAA whenever friends, family, other coaches from other countries come over. I love bringing them to Croke Park and this is an amateur sport and all the volunteers in it. Um, so I think in many respects, coaching is in a brilliant place and I think we've got some outstanding individuals. And, and one of the things around that is our interpersonal relationship, our ability to talk and get on with people 
is you know we can talk to anyone at any time because it would normally start with grand old day you know um but that just breaks the ice and you know i grew up in a place where if you took if you talked or even looked at somebody in the wrong way they'd think you were mad if not beat you up you know i grew up in south london was you know not the easiest place to to grow up in so um it was a bit of a culture shock for me coming where everybody spoke to everybody and um so i think i love a sport i think um the volunteerism puts us in a really good place and I think we have really good coaches and I think we have really good athletes. I just think in our coach development now and, I, and I'm working with some sports that are doing it, is changing how we develop coaches around their individual needs and not trying to pigeonhole them to coach in a certain way. Um, you know, that, that's one of the issues I have with assessing a level two or a level three or a level one or an introduction course. What the participants will do is they'll try and coach like you coach, but you, I may be working at high performance most of my week. You're working with under 12s or under sixes. You need to be totally different in the way you coach. Plus you need to bring personality into coaching. So what we mustn't start doing is pigeonhole and we must look at the other methods of developing coaches to embrace their philosophy, to embrace their personality, and to embrace their context. And schemes like mentoring schemes, um, communities of practice, uh, problem-based learning, where we, where we, in coach development courses, actually get them to deal with the everyday problems that you find in coaching. And then most importantly, any coach development needs to be contextual. So whatever we do, then the coach must be able to draw it into their context, their set of circumstances. And in kind of where we just do coach education courses that are aimed at a particular type of person, run by a particular person working in a particular context, we can often pigeonhole them. And I think indoctrination tends to happen. Uh, we have a few questions that we like to ask everyone on the show. Okay. All right. So uh, I'll fire them at you. What does the term successful coach mean to you? Well, I just gave my, now, as a, a person who loves developing coaching, it's about what your aims are. So when I was, I was in charge under 21s, under 18s, all the development athletes in England, that was successful for me with a number of those athletes because they now have Olympic medals. So that's very different. If I go and coach an, an under eights, my success will be based on, did they have a good time? Did they enjoy it? Did they get to play lots of games? And will they come back next week? So you rate the success back to what you said about context. Depends. It's all contextual. What the, you know? Are we giving what we want the the the, the essence of the, the the sessions? And too often, adult coaching is instilled on youngsters. So my two young fellas went to a hurling session. I got them there late one day, so they had to do a lap of the pitch for every minute that they were late well it was my fault and then every time they made a mistake they were doing press-ups there were nine they never went back sadly although one of them went back and that was what they were doing in their adult sessions that's not appropriate so success is basically well what are the aims and objectives of the group of people that you have there and that may vary within some of the people so do you hit all those aims it's not what you want it to be necessarily and you can bring your coaching philosophy to that regardless in my opinion yeah, I think that's a really good answer and that's what people can actually think about then what they're doing in their own training sessions now and seeing 
if it's relatable to what they had planned and I think it ties in again with the reflective practice that you talked about earlier where, where I really learned that was when we went to the Olympic Games in Sydney each of the athletes fills in quite a detailed media profile so between matches one day I got onto a computer and I just started looking at and even our own athletes I didn't know or hadn't heard of half the coaches they were talking about were who was the most influential person well it was normally the person that started them off that made them enjoy the sport and built a belief in them that they could be really good at this and the enjoyment that made them want to further it you have to enjoy what you're doing if you're going to go far yeah I think someone once said to me you always remember the coach who, who you enjoyed playing with most and you know Liam you know Liam Morgan who, who was first on your show would always say coach the person before the sport and I, I couldn't agree with that more particularly at the younger levels um, and that connection and there are some pretty average coaches who've done some amazing things because their investment in individual people and the collective of those people out, outweighs the importance of their technical or tactical knowledge. What's the best book or resource that you would recommend to coaches listening? The, the Onya McNamara and Dave Collins book around uh, developing talent, I think it's called a practitioner guide. That is brilliant about how do you deal with and develop the mental aspects of the game. It's research-based, but it's practical because it's called a practitioner's guide. Uh, as a coach in my own development, I think Black Box Thinking was a very good book in terms of, well, how do you review effectively and um, the importance of honest evaluation, both yourself as a coach and management team or getting your athletes to do that. Matthew Syed, is it? Yeah, Matthew Syed. I mean, yeah. his books are interesting. I don't necessarily agree with all the stuff that goes in them, um, but that's quite a good approach to improving what you do in life. Okay. Um, that, uh, while you have on, I know you run the DCU masterclass. Yeah, well. we yeah we run each January now. We run a series of masterclasses. We've had up to two hundred uh, participants. Uh, we run them. They they they. I don't think they're expensive, and we've had some amazing coaches, um, some highly successful coaches. And I mentioned Sally calls Cadden last year. She's been to I think we've run for four or five five years. She's been to every single one. And we'll have to get her to present now because she's a world silver medalist. So this year's will be the back end of January. And we normally give a theme. Uh, so we've done leadership in coaching and we had B.D. Walsh and people like that in uh, Gary Keegan, uh, Liam Sheedy. Um, this year's will be building on the massive success that we've had in, in Irish sport. So the athletics success, the paralympic, paralytics success, the rowing success, the equestrian success, of course, the hockey success. And hopefully we're going to have Stuart Lancaster in from a sort of Leinster rugby. I'm a Munster man, but I'll uh, uh, and and his journey as a as a you know as a failed as he would be seen, a failed coach, as he would be seen in England. What an amazing resource England have lost because they pushed somebody too early, and didn't back him for longer. So he'll come in and he'll be talking this year. So great set of presenters. Um, we yeah, well, we'll, we'll tweet links up to that uh, uh, closer yeah. to the time. Um, the last question, and you've been brilliant with your time, and I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. You will probably have covered some of this already, but maybe in summary, what are your top tips for a developing coach? The most important proce process in you developing is your own self-awareness um, and your ability to allow other people to input to your self-awareness. So get feedback from others, that would be number one. Number two is to learn 
from people around you, whether it's reading, videos, etc. But keep your own personality and values at the heart of what you do. Um, not copy people. I think that that would be the, the second thing. Um, and then constantly keep some form of log or journal of what you do. Because over a period of time, we often desert the things that we used to do that are highly successful. And we're always looking for something new. And there can't always be something new and everything that was old was bad. Yes, we look to renew, but often the things we first start doing in our coaching are actually really good things and that we shouldn't desert them, particularly if they're successful. That's some really good advice, I think. Listen, Dave, it's been great having you on. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for listening to The Coaching Bubble. I hope you learned something that can help your own coaching in some way. Anything referenced on the show, like books or podcasts, if you follow our Twitter page, at Bubble Coaching, we'll put everything up there. You can find us on SoundCloud. We'd love some feedback, so feel free to leave a comment or a review. Once again, the show is brought to you by the Coach Education and Development Centre of the Camogie Association. Thanks for listening. Till next time.